Chapter Five of Tom Playfair or Making a Start. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Five, in which Tom is persuaded to go to sleep. No doubt many of my readers have been asking themselves, what manner of hero is Tom Playfair? Couldn't the author have selected a better or at least a more refined character? This Tom is bold, given to slang, rather forward self-willed and but stay reader let us get in a word we throw up our hands and grant the full force and truth of all these naughty adjectives indeed there are faults and great faults to be found in tom there are many flaws in the crystal but what then these little flaws after all are not irremediable tom may be a real gem even if it be that the gem is in the rough some of his flaws indeed are simply untrimmed virtues his boldness is an exaggerated manliness. Certainly it has nothing of the bully in its ring. His slang is that ineffectual struggle for humor so noticeable in many young people, and in them, at least, we speak not for maturer sinners in this line, pardonable. His forwardness is the exaggeration of what we all love and hold fast to, American independence. But enough on the score of excuses. Let us hope that the edges may be rounded, that the gem in the rough may sparkle unto the admiration of many, that the exaggeration of American virtues may be subdued to that golden mean which we all admire so much and practice so little. Tom's dialogue with the shin-worried Green, while drawing our hero into prominent notice, gained him a host of admirers and a few friends. As he and Harry were taking a stroll about the yard, shortly after Green's departure in quest of that boarding-school boy panacea, Iodine, he was accosted by a little lad in knickerbockers, his expression a mixture of timidity and wistfulness. "'Well, my son,' said Tom, who was about half an inch taller than the stranger, "'what can I do for you?' "'I'm so glad you didn't let that green get ahead of you. He's mean. He pinched me for nothing and asked me whether my mother knew I was out, and—and I don't want to stay here. My baby sister,' here the little man began to cry, "'won't know me when I get home.' he's homesick got it bad whispered harry in a kindly tone here said tom take some candy the youngster accepted the candy and tried to cheer up he ceased crying though he gave vent at intervals to deep sighs come and sit down here continued tom now what's your name joe white my pa is a doctor in hot springs and he's got lots of money and rides round in a horse and buggy it must be fun riding round in a horse observed harry does he do that often? Joe relented into a smile. Haven't you any friends here? pursued Tom. No, and I want to go home, sobbed Joe in a fatal relapse. The boys are all mean here, and nothing is good. Oh, you don't know him well enough yet, said Tom, and he added with ingenuous modesty. Harry and myself are good fellows. You just wait, Joe, till you grow up to be a man, and then you won't have to go to boarding school, you know. Then your papa will die, and you'll have all his money and go riding round in a horse and— Boo! interrupted Joe, appalled by this ill-directed bit of word-painting. I don't want my papa to die. Don't get so excited, put in Harry. He isn't going to die now. I don't want him to die at all, blubbered the wretched victim of homesickness. I want to go home right now and see him and mamma and Sissy and little Jane and all of them. I tell you what, said Tom, let's be friends, and then you won't be lonesome. What do you say, Joe? With one hand rubbing his eye, 
Joe extended the other, first to Tom, then to Harry. Each of these young gentlemen shook it warmly. Master Joe's case is a fair specimen of the malady which attacks almost invariably the new boy, homesickness. Like measles, whooping cough, or seasickness, few escape it, and still, true to the likeness, it seizes upon its victims with various degrees of malignity. Under an ordinary attack, the patient feels fully convinced that life outside the home circle is not worth living. Games, meals, even candies lose their zest. Like the qualities of mercy, homesickness is mightiest in the mightiest. The large boy, when afflicted with it, is a piteous sight indeed. After five o'clock supper, the students took recreation till six, when a bell summoned them to the hall of studies. Here they were at liberty to sort and examine their books, and write their parents' assurance of their safe arrival. Tom, on entering, noticed that the older boys, instead of seating themselves at once, were all standing in silence. Following their implicit guidance, he too stood beside his desk, and fixed an inquiring look upon Mr. Middleton, who from a raised platform commanded a view of the entire study hall. Whilst Tom was still wondering why the old boys were so slow about sitting down, the prefect made the sign of the cross and recited the Veni Sancte Spiritus. This beautiful prayer concluded, all addressed themselves to their work. Instead of beginning to study, Tom sat for some time curiously watching the movements of those about him. The old boys, with scarce an exception, were inscribing their respective names in their new books. The newcomers were rummaging in their desks in a vain attempt at appearing easy and self-possessed. Mr. Middleton seemed to have his eye on every one. Presently a professor entered the study hall, and Mr. Middleton retired. This professor was the regular study keeper. Tom gazed at the new official for some moments, and then turned to Harry. I say, what's the name of that man? Shh, said Harry. Throwing a look of disgust at his monitor, Tom turned to Joe White, who sat at his left, and repeated the question. I don't know, returned Joe. Say, what are you going to do this hour? I'm going to write home and ask them to take me away from this place. Oh, don't be in a hurry about that, whispered Tom. After a few days you will begin to know the fellows better, and— Just then a hand was laid upon his arm, and Tom, on lifting his eyes, saw the study-keeper before him, looking rather stern than otherwise. Keep silence in here, Playfair, he said. No talking. Take out your books and paper and go to work. Say, mister, how did you come to know my name? The study-keeper bit his lip to restrain a smile, and moved to another part of the hall. The secret of his knowing Tom's name was very simple. A map is made of each boy's place in the study-hall, washroom, refectory, dormitory, and chapel. One glance at the map will inform the presiding officer whether each boy be at his post. And, in consequence of this system, a boy cannot absent himself from college for any period beyond an hour at the most without being missed. Thus admonished, Tom opened his desk, took out his writing materials, and, after great effort, much blotting of paper, soiling of fingers, and intellectual travail, delivered himself of the following letter. St. Mars College, September 5th, 18. My dear Aunt Jane, I take my pen in hand to let you know that I am well, hoping this leaves you the same. St. Mars is a pretty jolly sort of a place, and I am not one bit homesick. Lots of new kids are. Tell Jeff Thomas I will write to him soon. Who is taking care of my pigeons? Tell Papa my love. Is my rooster with the long tail all right? My money is nearly all gone. 
I had an accident on the car coming here, and I had to pay the nigger porter for an old lantern. Goodbye. I am going to study right hard. Your lovely nephew, Thomas Playfair. While he was addressing the envelope destined to carry away this choice bit of literature, he felt someone poking him in the back. On turning, he perceived a hand extended from under the desk behind him holding a bit of paper. Tom received the note. It read as follows. Mr. Playfair, say you will fight me at recess behind the old church building. Yours, John Green. P.S. You are a sneak. To which Tom elaborately replied, Dear Mr. Green, how did you come to be called Green? And why do the boys call you crazy? How is your knee? Does it hurt much? You don't spell well. F-I-T-E is wrong. It ought to be F-I-G-H-T. You are bigger than I am and older. Instead of fighting, you ought to study your spelling book. Fightin' is low, and I don't want to, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. When you write home, give my love to your papa and mamma. Yours, Thomas Playfair. After passing this note, he took a leisurely survey of the study hall, stretched his arms, then concluded to go out. Taking up his cap, which, by the way, he had borrowed from Harry Quip, on losing his own, he walked toward the door. Just as he was opening it, his progress was arrested by the study keeper's voice. Playfair, go back to your seat. This in a very imperative tone. I'm going out, sir, said Tom, pausing with his hand on the doorknob to impart this information. Go back to your seat. With a look of patient, unmerited persecution, Tom returned to his place, casting wrathful glances on the way at several who were grinning at his mistake. A little later the bell rang, and all repaired to the yard to enjoy a few minutes of recess. This over, they recited night prayers in common, and retired to their dormitories for the night. The novel sight of a hundred boys undressing as one struck Tom as being rather funny than otherwise. Indeed, he was so absorbed in a humorous survey of this spectacle that he stood stock still, grinning broadly and incessantly for some minutes. A hand upon his arm called him down from his numerous heights. It was Mr. Middleton. Playfair, he whispered, have you anything on hand just now? No, sir, answered Tom, wondering what would come next. Well, then you had better undress and get to bed. And Mr. Middleton resumed the saying of his beads as he continued his route up and down the passage formed between the beds. Pshaw, growled Tom. A fellow can't look cross-eyed here, but he gets hauled up for it. I don't see any harm in looking around. And sadly he proceeded to pull off his sailor shirt. He had just succeeded in getting this garment free of one arm when he perceived Harry Quip some ten or eleven beds further off. Harry caught his glance and smiled. The smile brought sunshine back into Tom's heart. Suspending further operations on the sailor shirt, he playfully put the thumb of his right hand to his nose and made the popular signal with his fingers. Instead of taking this friendly and jocose demonstration in the spirit in which it was given, Harry's face lengthened into dismay, while his eyes glanced apprehensively in the direction of Mr. Middleton. Tom, following the movement of Harry's eyes, turned, and yes, there it was again, saw Mr. Middleton bearing down upon him. Well, I'm switched, he thought, as he slipped out of his clothes with marvelous speed. If he isn't making for me again. And leaping into bed, he buried his face in the pillow. Young man, whispered Mr. Middleton, bending down over him, we want no levity in this dormitory. No what, sir? No levity. What's that, sir? Shh, don't talk so loud. I mean you mustn't talk, whisper, laugh, or make signs. Do you understand me? Yes, but— 
that'll do go to sleep now and if you have any objections to make i'll hear you in the morning he's a nice one grumbled tom to his pillow he won't give a fellow any chance to explain two minutes later he was sleeping a dreamless sleep End of chapter five recording by maria therese